Tavis Miley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1 800 920 1580. We are playing all three hours of our program today. Some of the best of the maestro Barry White. Why? Glad you asked. Because June is Black Music Month. And every hour of our program, every day of this month, we are picking an iconic uh, African American artist and playing the best of his or her corpus. Uh, and today, that person is Barry White, who's sounding awfully good right about now. Uh, in this hour, uh, I, uh, let me ask a question. Are, are you ready to unlock your superpower, your superpower that he is, and become a master influencer? In this hour, I'm pleased to be joined by Zoe Chance, an award-winning professor at Yale and the author of the international bestseller, Influence is Your Superpower, the Science of winning hearts, sparking change, and making good things happen. She joins us now for a conversation to unpack the transformative strategies that she shares for harnessing influence ethically and how to move past common misconceptions, cultivate charisma, negotiate creatively, uh, and spot manipulative tactics before they affect your influence. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the program today, she teaches one of the most popular courses at the Yale School of Management, and we get to audit that course for the next 60 minutes at no at no price to you, I might add. Uh, pleased to welcome Professor uh, Zoe Chance to this program. Professor Chance, how are you today? Hello, Tavis. I'm doing fantastic. It's an honor to meet you. It is an honor to meet you. I'm so delighted to have you on this program. I've been, I've been uh, waiting for this conversation. Uh, appreciate your work and your witness. Uh, and again, just thankful that you gave us an hour of uh, your time again to, to, to sort of audit what you do at Yale every single day. Um, let me start with this because I was I was um, I wrestled with this when I, I got into your work some time ago, and that is this notion that you believe. Um, that we are all born influential. Here's your argument. Uh, and if I get it wrong, you can slap me. Well, don't slap me, but just correct me if, if I get it wrong. <laughs> As I read and understand your work, you believe that each of us is born influential, but then we are essentially taught how to suppress our power, how to follow the rules, how to wait our turn, how to not make waves. Um, so let me start with that. Is that an accurate assessment of what you believe? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Okay. Tell me more about that for starters. Anyone who has had children, if you've been a baby, but you probably don't remember that part, if you have ever raised a baby, you know how incredibly influential they are. We can influence people to take care of us and feed us and love us and cuddle us days and sleepless nights all day for years. And in fact, our ability to influence and persuade other people is our only means of survival that we're born with. Unlike almost any other species, we don't have the sharp teeth or claws or any means of protecting or defending ourselves, but we have honed this ability over a million years of human evolution to influence others on behalf of ourselves and then also to work collaboratively. And this is how our species has come to dominate the earth for good or for ill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm laughing because I never, I never thought of uh, babies and and their behavior uh, (laughs) as being influential, but I, but I take your point Uh, as babies, we do things, we move certain ways, we don't move certain ways. We cry, we do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that influences others to, 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 to take notice of us and to, to handle us in ways that we need to be handled. That's right. And then it's those people who love us, who then train us to be, in air quotes, be good and play nice and not take up too much space. And they end up hindering us for being as influential as we could be in many cases as we grow. What do you make then of that dichotomy? 
it's a hard thing to struggle with, right? There's a fascinating study by a sociologist named Jessica Calarco, who was looking at students and teachers in middle schools. And what she was studying is this general phenomenon that I call the asking gap. And it's that almost none of us are asking for as much or as often as we could or as we should, but those asks that happen are unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. And it's often related to privilege and power. So she looks at these kids in multiple middle school classrooms, and she's taking note of which kids are asking for, say, extra time or extra help or leniency to get out of a punishment. And she has information on their family's socioeconomic status. So some of these kids are from middle-class families, some are from working-class families. And then she also notes which teachers are, sorry, not which teachers, which kids teachers are saying yes to. Mm -hmm. And then she interviews the parents. So would you want to guess? So I've told you it's related to privilege. So you could guess that the kids from middle-class families are more likely to ask than kids from working-class families. Mm -hmm. But do you want to guess how much more likely? Mm, uh, Just the way you framed the question, it's going to be a high number. So I'm going to go above 50%, obviously. Yeah, it's actually 600% more likely. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) It's a huge effect. That's the first thing that is powerful about the study. The second thing is the teachers were not biased, and the teachers are trying to say yes to every kid. But what happens is that they're reinforcing inequality by being really kind people who just try to say yes. And so this is what we're like when we're leaders or managers or anyone trying to be helpful. If we're reactively waiting for people to come and ask us, we're reinforcing inequality. Then then Jessica Clarko goes and interviews the parents. And what she finds is that parents in the working class families are training their children to be Mm self-reliant. They're teaching these kids, you might have to work two or three times as hard as somebody else, while the parents in the middle-class families are teaching their kids that privilege is at least partially negotiated. So this is a big reason for why I do the work that I do, is to close inequalities like the asking gap. Mm, I want to talk about uh, the asking gap. I love that phrase. Uh, Just getting started. It's going to be a great hour. Uh, Professor Zoe Chance, uh, again, teaches the most popular class at Yale. And you get to, uh, again, audit it for free for the rest of this hour. Her international best-selling text is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. I look forward to the rest of this hour with Zoe Chance when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. The IRS is the most... June is Black Music Month, and today our featured artist is Barry White, who you'll hear all three hours of our program today on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, We're just getting started in what's going to be a rich conversation. Already is. Going to get richer uh, as we move through this hour. Our guest is very, very popular Yale professor Zoe Chance, uh, whose book is also very, very popular, international bestseller. It's called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. And before that uh, break, uh, she'd said a few things already that that, uh, I was noodling uh, as she was uh, advancing the conversation. Let me go back to two or three things before we go forward. 
uh, Professor Chance, that um, uh, I found a, a bit arresting. One, can I, can I ask you to, to define a bit more uh, for the audience uh, the notion of what you call the asking gap? The asking gap is the difference between how many people with privilege are asking and how many people without privilege are asking. And this cuts across socioeconomic lines, gender lines, race lines, cultural lines, where in a particular context, people who feel less powerful are less likely to advocate for themselves. And this reinforces inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking while you were breaking that down uh, moments ago, about my friend Cornell West, who is a professor, um, has been, of course, uh, at Harvard and Princeton. He's now uh, at uh, Union Seminary in New York City. But I, I was laughing because I, I can recall uh, so many times he has said to me, Brother Tavis, he said, uh, I've learned in my years at Harvard and at Princeton, it's not so much that these uh, white brothers and sisters, these white students are that much uh, smarter, that more advanced. Uh, than black children. Uh, Part of it is that all of their lives, they've been told by their parents, you are brilliant. You are an Hmm. all-star. You are this. You are that. You contrast that with with, with parents in other communities, uh, certainly communities of color. uh, And while there are certainly parents in communities of color who do that, um, we could have a a conversation if we were honest. I ain't going to detour right about now. We could have a conversation, if we were honest, about the ways in which oftentimes uh, black parents and others talk down to their children. I'm not going to pivot to that right about now. But for those who are listening, you know I'm keeping it real. You know I'm telling the truth. We could have a conversation just about that uh, as compared to how white parents and privileged parents speak to their kids all the time in uh, uh, just continuing to, to, to undergird them and to empower them with this narrative that they are brilliant, that they are the best, that they're going to run the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I come to that, uh, that, uh, uh, that notion that Cornell West has shared with me many times over the years, Professor Chance, to get your take on how that impacts what we're talking about right now. It's really interesting to hear his perspective, and my perspective as a professor at this super fancy school where kids come from all over, and I teach adults too, not just kids, Mm -hmm. but they come from all over, and so many of them are insecure, and they feel a tremendous imposter syndrome, and they don't feel like they belong. So my experience has been a little different that Mm -hmm. most people, don't feel that they deserve the success that they already have. But I've had especially a lot of students um, who are first generation coming to college and people who grow, grew up in situations without privilege that feel that a lot more strongly. Yep. So now you've lost me. Uh, I say you've lost, I say that lovingly, I say that lovingly respectfully. <laughs> Here's where you lost me. Uh, I see every day, this audience sees every day, uh, the effects, uh, the, the examples. Uh, we see living epistles, if you will, uh, of white privilege in real time. Uh, but what you're telling me is at Yale, uh, that you oftentimes see white students who are suffering from imposter syndrome, feeling like they don't deserve to be there. And yet I, I'm trying to juxtapose that reality with the white privilege that they express when they get out of Yale and start moving differently. So what am I missing here? The white privilege that you're talking about, in general, absolutely real. And um, we have in the school where I teach, mm-hmm. we have 40% international students, 
uh, it's a fairly diverse student body, so I don't think that it's majority white. I'm sure. pretty sure it's not, but I don't know the numbers. The wh- What I'm trying to say is even the white kids who have grown up with privilege in America don't feel their white privilege. Mm. That's my experience of them. They have it. They don't know it. Because what they see is other people who are more successful and more impressive. The people who show up here are extremely impressive and intimidating to one another. And you have to be here for a while before you get comfortable with the idea that maybe it's okay that you're here and they didn't make a mistake. Mm. I'm not saying it's not easier for them. Right. It's easier to be a white person in this country than to be a person of any other color. Yeah. Again, I'm 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 lost, and I need I need you to rescue me. I need okay. you. I need I'm I'm, yeah, I'm out here I'm at sea, and I need you to rescue me, um, because here's here's what I'm not getting. And again, I don't want to get too far afield. I want to stay focused on this influence as superpower. We'll get back to that in a second. But all this ties together, obviously. Um, so the the narrative that we that we typically get, and I've had conversations about this, is that what in fact perpetuates white privilege in this country are all these white kids who are advantaged uh, by the opportunities they that they have, including being able to sit in classes uh, at Yale and at Harvard and, you know, in the Ivy League and other great schools across uh, across this country. And what we're doing with those persons uh, having this kind of exposure to the best of education is perpetuating the kind of white supremacy, the kind of white privilege that already exists. It's the reason why so many of us are walking on eggshells right now about this impending decision from the Supreme Court that is going to wipe out affirmative action as we know it, brought to us courtesy of Harvard and University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to understand this 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 notion that these kids f- don't feel like they have the privilege that they have that they're suffering from imposter syndrome but it is these very institutions that keep pushing out all these same people that run the world so my experience as a professor at Yale is that the students that I teach Overall, not every single one of them, overall, they're very smart, they're very kind. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's any different to teach at Harvard. I did my doctorate there, but I haven't taught there. Mm -hmm. My experience is that students come to the School of Management at Yale, especially because we have this very grounded ethos and culture of business and society. It started as a nonprofit management school, and students don't tend to come here unless they want to try to not just get power, but empower other people. Mm-hmm. This is deeply baked into the culture. And also what you end up finding at student, with students at these top schools, where it's so selective to get in there, and this is true at Harvard, is that a huge number of them are insecure and also clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you have all of these confident rich white kids who come from many generations of money like you see in the movies when you see Harvard or Yale mm-hmm. or someplace like this. However, so that, that's just overall everybody, even the people who have privilege because of their race or their money or anything else, they don't, they don't feel or act as privileged as I might have expected before I came to Yale. Mm-hmm. But, Tavis, there's also this hidden curriculum that, I don't know if you and Cornell talk about it, but students who come from families 
who have been part of higher education and like these families, these middle-class families in the study I mentioned who are training their kids to ask, advocate for themselves, negotiate privileges. These are also the students who tend to say, show up to office hours to meet their faculty and not feel like you have to have the best question or be desperately in need. And students, and many of these students, they're much more likely to be students of color, right, mm-hmm. who are first generation or who don't come from a family that is already familiar with the unspoken rules of the academy. They are less likely to get privileges because they don't know to ask for them. And they don't know that they can make friends with their professors. And they don't know that professors, for example, find jobs for some students and make those connections sometimes and invite them to do research and invite them to TA because we like them and things like this. So this is all part of the asking gap that I'm talking about. Got it. So let me let me let me ask two questions. I and I'm, I want to ask it in two parts because there I see sort of two groups uh, in this conversation at the moment, at least. Let me start with the first generation. Uh, students who happen not to be um, white. Uh, Most first-generation students uh, tend to be students of color. Uh, You're talking to uh, a first-generation college student. I'm the first person on either side of my family, mother or father's side, to go to college. And I'm a witness, as I've often said on this program, that education can be a great equalizer. It can be a game-changer because I was the first on either side of my family to go. And after me, my brothers and sisters went. They went to great schools like Morehouse and Hampton and on and on and on. Uh, Some of my siblings have more education than I have at this point, but I was the first one to go. So it can be a game changer, no question about it. Uh, But I'm I'm curious about this group first, the first-generation students. Um, uh, How do you convince a first-generation college student that his or her influence is their superpower when they don't even feel like they have any influence. They're just just—they're the first one in their family to do this. Uh, so how do you convince them that, that they do have influence and it is their superpower? In my class, what we do is I send them off every week to do real-world challenges where they're testing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. The students jokingly call my class doing uncomfortable things that make you a better person. So <laughs> to, share, to share one example of a student... Um, who I think was a first-generation student. His family was from New Orleans, and he had grown up in difficult situations. His family definitely wasn't from an elite background. His mom was blind. They lost their home in Hurricane Katrina. He finished school in high school living with a stranger's family. His family was originally from Costa Rica. He plays this bigger and better game where you start with a paper clip and you're supposed to trade it up for something bigger and better, bigger and better, as many times as you want. And then the next week, you come back to class with your biggest, best thing. And this student, Manus, with his partner, Tom, shows up in class and other people have brought things like, here's our big statue, or here is our, like, people bring some weird stuff sometimes, like a piece of marble from mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein's palace. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Manus and Tom, they show up and they have nothing, and they said, we couldn't fit our biggest, best thing in the room. Zoe, would you bring the class outside? Do you mind? So we go to the front of the building, and in the turnaround, right in front of the building, is a Volkswagen Jetta, and it says, <laughs> bigger and better, across the windshield. And between a Monday and a Thursday... They made 10 trades with New Haven business owners in our town, and they traded up from a paper clip to a car, 
And then they donated the car to a refugee family. A mom from Afghanistan came to pick it up so she didn't have to commute two hours each way on the bus anymore. So this is just a tiny example of experimenting and testing the power that you have. Mm. Tavis, and by the way, please call me Zoe. Um, I find Dr. Chance and Professor Chance to just be weird, but I appreciate it. Um, I was inspired when I read about how you ended up working for Mayor Tom Bradley in Los Angeles, and I would love it if you could share how it was that that happened. Wow. It's it's rare that a guest puts me on the spot quite like this. Um, I I, I will answer. I promise you, I will answer that after news, traffic, and sports. Let me just get one. I I, I promise I will. Uh, And and as as my audience knows, uh, I appreciate the invitation to call you Zoe, but I believe that anybody who went to Harvard uh, and studied as hard as you did to become a PhD, then you deserve to be called Professor Chance. So forgive me. I'll call you Professor throughout this conversation. That's just my way because you've earned it and and I want to respect it. Uh, Let me ask you, though, in in, in 90 seconds, I promise I'll answer that question when we come forward. Um, I asked about the first generation. The other, the, the other group I wanted to get to was the group of elite students, those who are elite but also suffering with this notion of imposter syndrome. Is your process the same for getting them to understand the influence they have and how it is also their superpower, or is that different? It's a similar process, and in both cases, though, it really helps for people to have conversations, and especially conversations with people like them, who they see as role models and who they see as fellows on the path. So, And they can do things like amplify each other's voices and share opportunities and things like that so that they can rise together. But that's especially for, say, first-generation students. Oh, powerful point. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, her name is Zoe Chance. Her, her book, uh, International Bestseller, is called Influence is Your Superpower, the Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen. And I will take her in treaty when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports to talk about the asking gap and tell you how I ask, frankly, begged. Uh, for an opportunity with Tom Bradley, who, by the way, uh, just got an invitation yesterday from the President of City Council. Uh, there's a private ceremony later this week here in L.A. to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the inauguration of Tom Bradley as the first black mayor of this city. He served for 20 years. That would never happen again because now we've got term limits, only two terms. Uh, but I was honored to work for the first black mayor of the city who was inaugurated July 1, 1973, 50 years ago, later this week. Uh, I'll tell the story when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud. loud. A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. That's Barry White and the Love Unlimited Orchestra. Uh, as many of you know, I love music, music lover. Uh, and um, there are a lot of great bands and background groups with great names. I used to love, um, Stevie called his, his background singers Wonder Love. Uh, Ray Charles, of course, called his background singers The Ray Letts. A lot of great background singer names and band names but it's hard to top the love unlimited orchestra and if you have never seen barry white conduct the love unlimited orchestra i want to just make you smile today just google barry white conducts orchestra and you will see him conducting in a number of videos all over the internet uh, the love unlimited orchestra including this particular song um this track Uh, And I promise you, you will be just tickled uh, when you watch the way that Barry White 
conducted an orchestra. Not exactly like Gustavo Dudamel, I might add. And Dudamel is one of the best. I love him. We're losing him in L.A. He's going to New York to direct the New York Phil, conduct rather the New York Phil. Uh, so we're we're going to lose Dudamel here in L.A. Uh, in the next year, and I'm sad about that. Uh, but um, our, our friends in New York will benefit <laughs> from uh, from the maestro, Mr. Dudamel. But we're playing Barry White all three hours today because June is Black Music Month. Uh, and uh, we're playing the best of uh, a particular artist every day this month. And that artist today is the maestro, Barry White. We continue our very rich and fascinating and delightful conversation right now. I've been reading all your comments on social media, so you're loving this as much as I am, apparently. Her name is Zoe Chance. Uh, she's a very popular professor at Yale. Uh, her international best-selling text is called Influence is Your Superpower, the Science of winning hearts, sparking change, and making good things happen. And before news, traffic, and sports, she put me on the spot. As a matter of fact, my two guys, Miles, my board op, and J.D., my producer, were laughing, Professor Chance, uh, that <laughs> were laughing that Professor Chance has no problem with the asking gap because she sure put me on the spot by asking this question about how I got a position with Tom Bradley, which I'm happy to share because it does, I think, underscore this notion that we must not be afraid of the asking gap, and we've got to do our part to to, to shrink it and not be afraid to advocate for ourselves like others do. And when we don't advocate for ourselves, that is what Professor Chance was sharing with us earlier, uh, part of what creates this inequality gap in this country, that many of us just don't feel empowered to advocate for ourselves. So the story, in short order, is simply this. Um, I was having a very difficult time as a student at Indiana University. Uh, my parents were going through a pretty uh, bitter divorce. I'm one of ten kids. I'm the eldest in my family. Uh, and, um, it was a very difficult time and, uh, uh, having some difficulty in school, although I was a fairly good student, just a bad time for me. And I decided that I was just going to drop out of college, uh, and get into the real world and just get to get to work. I'd been a great student leader, was on the, on the debate team, uh, became an international champion on the debate team at Indiana university. I was just ready to get into the real world. I'd worked for the chancellor of the college. I'd worked for the mayor of the city of Bloomington. I thought I had enough experience and, I was only three years in as a junior, um, but I was ready to get out of there. And I was having, again, an emotionally difficult time. I decided I was going to quit. Long story short, a friend of mine convinced me not to quit, but to take a semester off and to do an internship that I'd never actually thought about. And the person that I wanted to intern with was a guy named Tom Bradley. He was a black man. I'm a black man. He was a Kappa. I'm a Kappa. Uh, he had just pulled off the most amazing Olympics in 84 ever. This is now 85. Uh, he's he's all that and then some. So I don't want to go to Washington to intern like my other college friends did on the Hill, passing paper, being a page on the Hill. I wanted to work with Tom Bradley uh, and get to know this brother out in L.A., although I was a student at Indiana University. Long story short, um, they told me that because I was at Indiana, they really didn't have a program for <clears throat> out-of-state students. <clears throat> if I had gone to UCLA or USC, uh, maybe they could have done something for me. So they tried to, they, they basically blew me off. Again, long story short, for months, for many, many months, I wrote Tom Brady a letter every single day. I wrote him a letter every single day and mailed it to Los Angeles. I mean every day. I mean every day. I wrote him That's a letter. Incredible. Every single day for months, I wrote Tom Brady a letter why he should choose me as one of his interns. Uh, and none of those letters were responded to. Uh, and one day, months in, I get a letter from somebody in the mayor's office here in L.A. telling me that I should stop writing letters, <laughs> that all their intern positions are filled. 
I'm out of state. There's nothing they can do for me. Um, and so just just stop writing us. And it wasn't just that I was writing. I was literally calling. I was calling the office every other day, long distance from Indiana. I was determined to get this interview, this uh, internship with Mayor Bradley. I wasn't going to accept no for an answer. And so I called. I got to know everybody in that office, some of them who are still listening to this program right now. Connie may be listening. Connie was there and Eula Collins was there and Wanda Moore was there and I and Kitty was there. I got to know Officer Walton. All these persons that worked in the mayor's office got to know me and I got to know them over the phone because I called them every other day trying to get to Tom Bradley, seeing if they got my letters and if they were going to give me an internship. Again, long story short, months go by, and I finally get a letter from the mayor's office telling me to stop writing. We ain't got no internship for you. Leave us alone. And my heart was broken because they hadn't responded to me for months, and I finally get this letter telling me to, you know, go somewhere. So I sat down after having typed all these letters professionally for months, and for the first time ever, I hand-wrote Tom Bradley a letter. And I recall it like it was yesterday. I was writing. I should have been writing in black ink. I was writing this letter in blue ink. And I was so upset and so dis- dis- destroyed by this emotionally, not to mention the divorce that my parents were going through and all the emotions I, were feeling, uh, I was feeling were coming out in that moment. And I was crying uh, as I was writing the letter and I had to keep blotting the ink on the paper because every time my tear would hit the page, it would, it would mess up my, my word. Um, so it was, it was quite a moment. But I got through that letter uh, and I prayed on that letter. I put it in the mailbox and I sent it off to Los Angeles. A couple of weeks later, <clears throat> my younger siblings who are staying with me for the summer, my younger brothers, I'm outside in the yard uh, in Bloomington, Indiana. My younger brothers come outside yelling, Tavis, Tavis, telephone, telephone. And they had such there was such exuberance in there yelling. I'm like, well, I get phone calls all the time. What's the exuberance about? They came yelling, running down the street. Tavis, Tavis, telephone, telephone. I said, what? What's the problem? They said, it's. It's Mayor Bradley from Los Angeles. I said, stop teasing me. I will whip your behind in the street right now if you if you lied to me about Tom Bradley on the phone. Sure enough, Tom Bradley was on the phone from L.A. I picked up the phone and he said, Tavis. I said, yes, this is Tom Bradley in Los Angeles. And I am just now discovering that for months you've been writing my office asking for an in- internship. I knew nothing about this. Uh, And I understand we sent you a letter telling you we did not have an internship for you. I said, that is true, Mayor Bradley. He said, well, let me just say this. The next time you are in Los Angeles, you come see me and we'll see if we can't work something out for you. I hung the phone up. I sent my brothers back home to my mom and my dad. Uh, I gassed up my car and I flew. I mean, gassed up my car, uh, drove to the airport in Indianapolis, flew to Los Angeles and when they got to work on Monday morning, he called me on a Friday. Monday morning, I was sitting in the hallway in the mayor's office. I was in L.A. just that fast um, because he told me when I was in L.A. next to come see him. And I flew to L.A., borrowed some money from some friends. Uh, and Monday morning, uh, when they came to work, I was seated in the hallway. And you it was like a receiving line. Everybody in the mayor's office, when they heard that the kid from Indiana was sitting in the hallway, he had flown to L.A. They all came out one by one, introduced themselves to me. Uh, and again, long story short, uh, I ended up getting an internship with Tom Bradley. Uh, I went back to Indiana. I got my car. I drove out to L.A. Uh, and for four months, for a full semester, I interned with Tom Bradley. Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And as you know, I went on to work for the mayor. And that's what started my career here in the city 
of Los Angeles. She asked, there's the story. Uh, that's my story about the asking gap. When we come forward, I want to go back now to Professor Chance to ask why she wanted me to tell that story and let her tease out from that story whatever she wanted to get to. You're listening right now to KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to like and follow Tavis Smiley at The Real Tavis Smiley. And get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues when we come forward. forward. So leave it to uh, my my Henri, uh my Henri crew, uh, Miles and, and JD, to ask me during the, during that break. So do you know who wrote that letter to you, Tavis? <laughs> and whatever happened to that person? Where are they? I do. Uh, I think he was just doing his job. His name is Craig Lawson, and I don't know where Craig Lawson is these days. Uh, I hope things are working out well for him. I can only tell you they worked out well for me. That internship with Tom Bradley turned into a career with Tom Bradley, and that turned into a media career. And all I can say is that I am grateful every day that uh, Tom Bradley called me and gave me an opportunity to intern for him for that semester. It really uh, fundamentally changed my life. And as I said earlier, uh, later this week on July 1st, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of Tom Bradley becoming the first African-American mayor of the city. Professor Chance is our guest in this hour. Zoe Chance, her book is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. So you forced me, Professor Chance, to tell that story. I told it. Now, now, now you unpack it for me. What, what are you teasing out of that? I loved hearing this in your own voice, in your own words. Having read it, it was inspiring, but I just will go away remembering this and having visualized every moment of it. What you were teaching here in our collective lesson on influence is the core of what it takes to be influential. When we were talking about the asking gap, the problem is that we hold ourselves back from being influential more than anyone else does when we don't ask and advocate, not just on behalf of ourselves, but other people. And we hold other people back when we make them ask. What happens when we can get, maybe not comfortable, but at least make peace with the idea that when there's something that you want, you have to ask for it, and you may have to ask and ask for it, regardless of how it feels you may have to be persistent and shift the perspective from somebody says no to you or they don't write back to you from thinking this is no to me forever, mm -hmm. but this is just no to this for now, but what about tomorrow, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And it was really important there too, of course, Tavis, that you were qualified for the job. It's not like you were some random, completely unqualified person with a ridiculous dream, you had actually already worked for the mayor of Bloomington. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't actually in any way unreasonable to say essentially, hey, would you be willing to bend the rules about which school I go to? And I'm curious how you got the courage and the faith and the hope to persist day after day when you weren't being successful. Yeah. Um, if my friends were answering that question, they would tell you, if you ever see Tavis in a fight with a bear, you better help the bear. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can pour honey all over Tavis and you still better help the bear. That's what my friends would tell you uh, that, I, that I, I just don't I, I, I don't take no for an answer. Here's what I've learned. It's, it's a brilliant question. And here's what I've learned. Speaking of the asking gap. And again, uh, I'm honored to be your your T.A. in this class that we're teaching right about now. Uh, uh, just again, just honored to be your T.A. But here's what I've learned over the years of, of my work uh, and witness. I never and I tell people who work with me never accept no from anyone who doesn't ultimately have the power to tell you yes anyway. If they are not the ultimate power in telling you yes, then don't accept no from them. 
And I knew that Craig Lawson, who I cast no aspersion on, the, 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 the white guy who I eventually met when I came to L.A., I met him. And he was a little sheepish when he met me and realized that I'd gotten this internship anyway. Uh, and, again, I'm not casting any aspersion on him. Um, but I knew that Craig Lawson wasn't Tom Bradley. And if I were going to be told no, then Tom Bradley was going to have to tell me no. I was not going to accept no from Craig Lawson. Uh, and so, again, my, 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 my edict is that I never accept no from anybody who doesn't have the power to tell me yes. And so that's the answer to the question of where I got the courage to do it. Uh, I just believe in, uh, in pressing my, my claim uh, and getting someone to respond to me. And, again, if the answer is no, the answer is no. Trust me, many, many times in my life I've been told no. But I was told no by the person, the final adjudicating authority, who had the wherewithal to tell me no, not by someone else. When we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, Professor uh, Zoe Chance, a few other things I want to cover with her. You're listening to Zoe Chance on KBLA Talk 1580. Chance, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I, would, I could talk to you for hours, and I've got about four or five minutes left here. Um, let me hasten to get to, to this question. Uh, you, 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 you began this conversation by telling us that we are all born with influence. But then we are taught to suppress that power, to follow the rules, to wait our turn, to not make waves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's more acute in communities of color than it is in other communities, which I understand. Um, but I'm curious as to how we, at some point in our lives, go about rediscovering that superpower of influence. Thank you. It's a really important question. And my belief is the easiest way to go about this is with the behavior before the belief. Mm. So you start putting yourself out there and facing rejection. In my class, for example, we even have a rejection challenge where you go out and you try to get rejected. By the way, about a third of people fail to get rejected. Um, <laughs> it's because people are more likely to say yes than we expect. Mm. Studies have shown on average when we make a face-to-face -face request, people are two or three times more likely to say yes than we think. And there's also a nice piece of research across, again, many studies showing that there is a liking gap of about 12%, and people like you 12% more than you realize. Mm. That's part of the reason that they're more likely to say yes to an in-person request than you think that they will be. And it also helps if you do these things and practice with a friend. So in my book, of course, I have a lot of strategies and activities and plenty of science, but we've focused on asking in this conversation because this is ultimately and absolutely the most important thing that we can do. And when you were asking for the job and asking for the job, you were also proving your motivation and your hard work, and that's what we look for in people that we want to hire. If I could leave people with one question to ask that's incredibly powerful, it would be, what, what would it take? So if you want a question to ask to help you be more influential, what would it take to do that thing it is that you're interested in? Mm. People in my class recently have used that question to, at the New York Times, get a policy change to have now every employee at the New York Times who wants to get their eggs or sperm frozen can get that covered as a health benefit. Another participant in a workshop with me asked that question at Turner Networks and got funded an internship program for underrepresented minorities because it was just a bunch of privileged kids who didn't need to make a salary who were doing these internships. And they, when I saw them last summer, they had just graduated their 24th intern. So what would it take to be yeah. more influential? 
Um, that's a powerful note on which to end this conversation, which I hate to end because I, I have so much more I'd love to talk to you about. Maybe somewhere down the road you'll have some more time to talk to us. But I was thinking as you were just uh, sharing now, uh, years ago, many of you remember those uh, bracelets everybody was wearing. They had the, the letters WWJD on them. Remember those back in the day? WWJD, mm-hmm. what would Jesus do? That's what it stood for, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, I'm going to get some made that say WWIT. What would it take? <laughs> I'm going to get me that a bracelet. That is a magic question. Yeah, I love that idea. That is the and question. And I love talking with you, Travis. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it immensely. W-W-I-T. What would it take? That's the question Professor Zoe Chance encourages us to ask ourselves today. Her book is called International Bestseller, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. Professor Chance, I enjoyed this immensely. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Hour three of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. Santa Monica.